All right, good to see everybody. Welcome back. If you're here for the first time, we're glad to have you. Uh, holiday weekend, so as a lot of our people are traveling, uh, I'm sure that half y'all in here are, are, are with family, so it's good to have you with us. Filling out the room a little bit. I need to check my deodorant, because y'all are sitting like way back. <laughs> it doesn't make me uncomfortable. My kids don't like to sit near me either, but I just, I gotta ask. So uh, turn in your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We have been in a series looking at the life of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. We've been pacing our way through it, basically looking at 10 chapters, starting in chapter 25. We're going to end in chapter 35 in about four weeks from now. And right now we're right in the middle of the story. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 30 today. Actually, we're going to do something that I, I haven't really done before. I'm going to start a sermon that I'm not even going to finish until next week. That's going to be okay with you. So it's going to actually sound kind of abrupt how I, how I finish it. It's just when you get to, to narratives, some of the passages are exceedingly long, and to get the complete context of what's going on, you sort of have to, to cover all of it. And so I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to give really partial, a partial sermon today and finish it up next week. But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 30, verses 25. And, uh, and read ver through verses 43, although I am going to uh, talk about uh, chapter 31 in, in its entirety uh, in the sermon today. And then again, we'll finish that next week. So I'm going to read. It's a lot of, lot of words here, a lot of, lot of verses. So I'm going to encourage you to get your Bible out. The words, the words won't be on the screen. And read along with me. Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph... Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when, uh, when shall I provide for my own household? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, he, uh, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass through your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and spotted and speckled amongst the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that's not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. So Laban said, good, let it be as you've said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that's, that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. 
He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the strong of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. The feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even these passages of scripture that, uh, that narrate other people's lives that we are supposed to glean our own lives from. God, this is one of those passages in the Bible that we need help with because it talks about strange stuff and strange customs that are nowhere near what we experience in uh, our own day and land. And so help us to bring clarity to that. I pray that you would bring uh, just a clarity to my words, God, that you would add um, your Holy Spirit and, and bless us, God, that we might um, be trained in righteousness, Lord God, that we might hear the gospel, that, that some good news might come out of this story and you might change us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at a passage of scripture today that will start today and really finish tomorrow, although I, I hopefully will give you enough detail that it will all be kind of clear. Um, this passage records some bizarre stuff, doesn't it? Um, I remember I, for the many years that I've be, become a, uh, been a Christian, every time I get to Genesis, and particularly this passage in Jacob, and it talking about the sheep and the goat and the speckled spotted stripe, I, I, I automatically go in my heart like, what in the world? I mean, why, why has God put this, put this here in the Bible? Obviously, he's put it here because he wants us to learn something. It's, it's a true story. But, um, you know, what do you do when you come across passages in the Bible that are kind of confusing? Do you wonder what the point is? Do you wonder what's going on? This is definitely one of those passages. So for today, here's our question. Why would God put this passage in the Bible like this? And what does he want us to learn from it. Keep that in the back of your mind. I think there's at least three principles that we can glean from uh, that have been principles used by the church fathers on uh, to, to our day-to-day by scholars uh, of the church to help us interpret uh, hard-to-interpret passages. And the first principle is simply this. When studying the Bible, remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. When you come to a difficult passage, what do you do? You go to a similar theme or word or passage in the Bible that may give light to what you have, have read. The second is similar to it. The New Testament reveals the Old Testament. And so particularly with passages like this, you look for passages in the New Testament that can help you glean what's going on. And we're going to look at one of those a little bit later in my sermon. The third, and this is probably the most important principle, a point the Bible makes uh, through and through is that this is God's word. I mean, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, this is God's word. And, and here is the promise that we have uh, from the word that Paul happened to announce to his protege, Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I like verse 17, that the man and woman, a woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so when you come to the Bible, regardless if it's a passage that's very clear or something that might be a little bit more difficult and you got to like dig in to really understand what's going on, 
there's a couple of things that we should immediately know that we're going to get. We are going to be trained in righteousness if you would work a little bit to, to heed what the Bible is, is saying and try to get some understanding. But more importantly, Jesus tells us ultimately all the scriptures are pointing to him. Amen. All the scriptures bear witness to him. And so we should not only expect to be trained in righteousness, we should expect to see something of Christ. But oh, don't you know, sometimes you got to actually work a little bit to get there. Um, so what does this passage train us in and where do we see Jesus? Uh, I've got two points for us today. And we'll begin our search considering the devil's in the details. The devil is in the details. I say that uh, because very easily we see the work of Satan in the characters and their actions in our text. It's hard to see anything of Jesus. I'm just being honest with you as a pastor that preaches about Jesus all the time. We see the work of Satan. It's hard to see anything of Jesus, particularly with all the sin and strife that takes place between these two households, particularly with Jacob and and with Laban. In reality, this is one giant sinful fiasco that we have to uh, unpack here. And the particular sin that's on display is the second most repeated Hebrew word in this text. It goes from where we started reading in verse 25 of chapter 30 all the way to the end of chapter 31. And it's a word conveying the idea of stealing or deceiving. That, ver- that word is included a lot in this text as the thing that's, that's most heinous amongst all the sins. And so here's what's, what's happening. Jacob has his... Uh, 11th son and his, his uh, only daughter, and he comes to the realization, it's, it's just time for me to go. And so he presents this to his father-in-law, Laban, and Laban seizes Jacob's desire to go home and uh, seizes that opportunity with another offer. And perhaps you can recall what's been going on with Laban and his offers. He says the very same thing that he said to Jacob the very first time, kind of like when he first met him, back, way back in Genesis 29, he says, name your wages. That's, that's a scary phrase when it comes out of Laban's mouth, because the last time that Laban said those words, Jacob woke up to a, a woman that he did not intend to marry, a woman that he would never love. He had to work seven years to, to, to gain, really gain her. And then he had to work seven more years, 14 in total, to gain the woman that he really loved, Rachel, these two daughters. And so when Laban says, name your wages, those were scary words. And, and, and Jacob reacted. He reacted in verse 31. He says, "What? don't give me anything. I don't want you to give me anything. Don't give me any wage. But then I think Jacob probably uh, pauses a bit and he says, wait, 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 I can, I can work this. I'm going to work this a little bit. And he decides that he will propose a a counteroffer to Laban. And the counteroffer involves something that's reasonable, but it it is kind of strange. He says, well, why don't my wages end up being the odd-colored sheep and goats of your flock? And that sounds strange to us, but what Jacob is basically saying is, I'll take the minority of of all of your sheep and your goats, and uh, that will be my wages. Uh, Most scholars would say that at this time, there would have been very little to no spotted or striped animals 
of, of, of any kind, particularly goats and sheep. They would have been monocolor, uh, black, gray for goats, white for sheep, right? I mean, that was basically what was happening at that time. And so to, to get a uh, spotted, striped, speckled goat or sheep out of, this, out of this crowd of animals would have been, you know, not miraculous, but it, it's, it wouldn't have been expected. There would have only been a few that would have had even spots on them at this point. So Jacob is offering Laban uh, something very reasonable, so reasonable that immediately Laban jumps at the offer. Verse 34, guess what he says? He says, good, it's a deal. And I can only imagine that Lacob sort of covers his face, looks back at his boys or his servants and said, this dude's a fool. Jacob thinks he's got him. He's got Jacob once again. He's going to add more years to his contract. He's going to keep his daughters and all the stuff that Jacob has amassed at this point. And it's really all going to be all going to be Laban's. And so Laban, not to be outdone, this is what he does. He immediately goes to work trying to rip off Jacob. He calls his sons. He separates the sheep and the goat that fit the description of the ones that Jacob will get as his wage. And his sons and his servants move those animals three whole days journey away from, away from where Jacob is going to be working. But the thing that, to notice here is that Jacob is not necessarily innocent in any of this as well. He has his own plan of deception. Jacob plans to make himself rich by weaning off all of Laban's sheep and goats. And so this is the weird part of the text. This is the part that gets me tripped up and makes me pause a little bit every time I come across it. And so I'm going to try and make it make sense for you as, as I've tried to make it make sense for me as I was preparing this sermon. This is actually combining a, com a combination of superstition and just common sense when uh, breeding animals. I've never lived on a farm. Some of you have. Uh, obviously, there are sophisticated techniques of how we get different animals to, to look and to, um, you know, to all, all the stuff that we do with horses and even dogs and, and all that. We can do that with any, any animal. There's some practical genetic things that we can do that doesn't involve chemicals and all that. But on top of that and, and foremost before that, there's superstition going on here in our text. And, and here's the superstition. The, the, the old tradition amongst the herdsmen of which Jacob was the superstition, rather, is that whatever the female sheep sees while mating, sheep or goats, whatever they see while mating is going to produce that impact on the offspring. And so seeing the peel poplar and almond sticks produces an abundance of speckled, striped baby sheep and goats. That's the superstition, that you, you put these animals before these before these pieces of wood that are kind of peeled off or might have little spots over them, and the sheep, as they're mating, are going to see that, and their offspring are going to come out kind of like that. I mean, doesn't that sound kind of crazy to you? It, it is crazy. It was, it was not only their tradition, it was their superstition. And, um, and we're going to find out what happens in regards to that. But the deception doesn't really stop there uh, between Jacob and Laban. In fact, it spills over uh, in terms of jealousy and backbiting to uh, their family members and also those servants that work for them. Crossing over into chapter 31, Jacob has his wives come out into the field so they could speak with him. 
and uh, he secretly plans to run away from their father. We're going to only read a little bit of chapter 31, uh, but I think you at least need to know this beginning part of what's going on to, to get the flavor of what happens next. Verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all of that was our father's, and from what our father uh, has, he's gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flocks was, where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I serve your father with all my strength. Your father, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you to do, please do. Let me fill you in. So, we don't know how much time has transpired, but eventually the Bible is going to tell us there's six years that Jacob serves Laban, sort of tending his flocks and, and winning them, amassing uh, all of his, his flocks and stuff. Uh, but, but here's the, the end result that the Bible lets us know about Jacob and all that transpires. Verse 43 of chapter 30. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys. This is basically telling us contextually that Jacob had a lot of stuff. Um, it would have been very uncommon for a person, any person, to own a camel and a donkey, like a lot of them. And so the, the Bible is telling us Jacob not just had a little, a little stuff of a lot of different things. He had a lot of stuff, so much that he had camels and donkeys and servants to take care of them. It's letting us know that God was really blessing Jacob. And then as we cross over to chapter 31, the Bible is telling us that Jacob, Jacob's not doing this on his own. There's an angel visiting. There's God's voice coming to him, and God is telling him what to do. And so the idea of, of really the superstitious practice was God gave him the end result, that you're going to end up with spotted, mottled, and speckled animals, all right? And... And all of it came, came to be. And so six years passed. Jacob is fed up. There's animosity between his servants and Laban's servants. And they're like butting heads because Jacob's fortune is amassing. And they go talk to Laban. It's like, look, this dude, you made a deal with him. And the deal, you're getting the short end of the stick. And he's just growing and growing and growing in terms of all the stuff that he has. And you, you got to do something. And so Jacob is, is discerning this. What, he, what does he do? 
He pulls his wives aside, the two, the, the two primary ones. Isn't it interesting we don't hear about Bilhah and Zilpah here? Poor girls. He pulls them to the side and says, hey, God's spoken to me. This is what's going on behind the scenes. And your, your father has, has been trying to, to take me all this, this time, and God's been on my side. So um, here's, here's what I think this ball boils down to. The sad thing that's on display, particularly as we enter the, the beginning of chapter 21, is that these, these daughters, Rachel and Leah, uh, their loyalty, loyalty to their dad, Laban, is about as great as his loyalty has been to them, marrying them off to the same man for what reason we don't know. Uh, they aren't necessarily elated to go along with Jacob and, and leave their father, leave all that they've known, and enter a, a, a new land with all their stuff. But they seem content to sneak off uh, primarily for one reason. They realize that there's no inheritance for them with their father. Why? Because their husband has gotten it all. And it, it would serve them to go and be wealthy with their husband rather than stay and be paupers with, with their dad. And so what do they do? Here's the rest of the story. And I'm not going to read this, but I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. So they, uh, they, they wait for a little bit. They wait to a specific time to the, the, the shearing of the sheep, which would be a festival that Laban and his, uh, his servants would have gone to. They wait until that unique time when he would have left whatever their, their home area was. And uh, Jacob packs up all his stuff, his servants, the animals, caravan full of stuff. And they sneak off. The uh, sneak off, and the interesting thing is, before they leave, verse 19, Rachel, for whatever reason, decides she's going to steal her father's household gods, his, his idols. And so uh, walls are, are thin when you live in a, in a desert tent, right? And so somehow, even at a far distance, Laban finds out that his son-in-law and his daughters have packed up and they've left. And... Um, I mean, what does Laban do? He, he does what any scoundrel that, that wants to get his stuff back would do. He, uh, he, packs, uh, he, he gets a posse together, and that posse heads uh, I mean, dead straight to, to get this stuff back. And so it took him seven days to meet up with Jacob at what the Bible says is the hill country of, of Gilead. And, I mean, needless to say, Jake, uh, Laban is, is riding a camel like a bat out of hell, right? I mean, he... I, they had a three days head start, Jacob and, and his, his, his wives and their caravan, and Laban in seven days catches up with them. And there's some interesting details as you read through chapter 31. One of the interesting details is that God intervenes by confronting Laban in a dream. So Laban has murderous intent. He's going to actually kill Jacob. The Bible sort of leads us on to belief. But God intervenes. He has an angel visit Laban, and he stops him from harming Jacob. And then, of course, Jacob and Laban have this face-to-face -face confrontation. And Laban, of course, has the first words. He chastises Jacob, accusing him of tricking him and of taking his daughters as if they were war, uh, war captives, under sword and all. And Kind of strangely, Jacob has one final, uh, Laban has one final question for Jacob. In verse 30, he says to him these words. He says, why did you steal my, my gods? And so Jacob comes up with his own defense of his actions. He tells Laban, hey, I sneaked away because of the obvious. You've, you've, 
I haven't been able to trust you. I've been completely honest with you. I've worked at this point 20 years for you. I've created wealth for you. I've married your own daughters. I've had grandchildren for you. And you've been completely unfair to me. And I can't trust you, which honestly, if you know the, tr the, the story, that's true, right? This is exactly what's gone on. And then Jacob goes on to deny taking anything of Laban's to include his household gods, saying, he's making a vow, really, that if anyone in his entourage, Jacob is saying this, if anyone has your, your idols, then I'll put that person to death. And that was a crazy, um, bold vow to make, considering the information that Jacob did not have. What's that information? That his favorite wife, Rachel, stole her dad's idols. And so here's what Laban does. Laban freakishly, desperately searches through all of Jacob's tents. He goes through Jacob's tent. He goes through Rachel's tent. He goes through Leah's tent. The implication is he probably goes through every bit of, of property that Jake, Jacob has set up as they're paused there at the, in the hill country of, of Gilead looking for his idols. And unfortunately, he comes up with nothing. Rachel has hidden these underneath her, sitting on a camel in the midst of her menstrual cycle, or so she says. She lies about it, which leads to the end of Laban's search. And this leads Jacob to berate Laban. Jacob uses some very strong words in response to Laban here. And this kind of is the end of the story. I mean, that's, that's a sad end of the story, but it is kind of the end of the story. So what we have here is really a whole pile of poop. I mean, there's, there's no better way to say it. This, this is like, like three-letter word sin on display in both of these houses. And I know if you're keeping, keeping a list of all the sins that are sort of building up in this text, but, but here are the ones that I found. Lies, deception, stealing, berating, dishonoring, rash vow-making, greed, self-righteousness, murderous intent, idolatry, and oh, by the way, a little bit of superstition. Those are all the, the sins that are happening in our text behind all the drama and commotion going on between Jacob and Laban. Both in Laban's household and Jacob's household, we have all this sin happening. So this account, like so many that we've seen in Jacob's biography, is, is staggering as it betrays just two men that are supposed to be God-fearing, but who have messed up families that operate on the, the, the simple principle of, of sin. And so that's what characterizes these two families. They're characterized by sin. But there's probably one sin that's dominant in the text above all the others. And I can't recall in my years of, of pastoring and preaching talking about this, but it's a sin that we see even in our lives today and it's the sin of superstition. So if you recall last week, at the beginning part of chapter 30, we had this superstitious use of, of mandrakes, this, this Mediterranean root that kind of had a human form that shrieked as you pulled it up, and the thought that it was an aphrodisiac, and it could help the, the you know, all the things that, um, that sexual drugs do uh, to make someone want to have, be intimate, to have a baby. And so you have the, the mandrakes from last section, you have the, the poplar and the almond trees that Jacob is using superstitiously in, in the text today. You have Laban uh, earlier in the text, knowing by divination that God has blessed Jacob. And you have Rachel stealing her dad's 
idols. There's, a, there's, there's some superstitious stuff going on in the lives of these two families. And I, I would say it's kind of a lot of superstition. And so just so we're clear on this, the Bible, is, although we're learning about this, that, that these, the people of God, the, these Jewish Israelite people are, are using these superstitions, the passage, is only re, uh, the passage is only recording this. The Bible is not necessarily condoning this. And of course, what it's not doing, it's not attributing that, um, that the multiplication of uh, of offspring from these animals is attributed to the superstition that we see Jacob, um, Jacob taking in the text. Another way of saying this is the Bible is not giving us a biology lesson of how to breed spotted, speckled, and, and model animals. It's, the Bible's not trying to do that, okay? Although it's not below the Bible to do that. The Bible is giving us a lesson in blessing. It's a blessing lesson. A blessing lesson that comes over and above the sinful, superstitious stuff that we see happening in our text. And I think that's an important distinction because we're not above this. We could do and we can do some of these exact things. I grew up in a, uh, a neighborhood where some of my best friends that live right down the street, we hung out with them all the time because they were on the only neighborhood with a pool. But they were, they were a very superstitious family, not church-going, not really God-fearing at all. And they had every superstition. They just fell into all of them, not, not just the simple kid ones, like, you know, don't cross over a line or that give you bad luck or you know, watch out for the black cats crossing in front of you. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't allow their kids to go to funerals, even of close loved ones, because they thought it might uh, it, it just... It just said that, that somebody in the family is going to die immediately after that, you know, and, and so on. Think about all the, the superstitious things that you've grown up with as, as a kid. And we play around with those, but sometimes when we play around them enough, they become part of our psyche and we actually believe them. But we have superstitions as Christians as well. How many times have you taken your Bible and you're, you're, you're desperate and you just open it up, you close your eyes, you take that, that holy finger... You plop it down and you look at the verse, thinking, knowing, hoping, praying that the verse that your finger lands on is going to be God's word to you to tell this, thus saith the Lord for your situation. And, and you read it and perhaps it might be good news for you. And you attribute that to that action that you took with that holy finger that God is speaking to you. And that I'm not making fun, but sometimes we do that, don't we? And we've learned that from somewhere. Lord, I need you to speak to me. And wherever your finger lands, that's it. Or perhaps instead, um, you've done something else to manipulate God. You say, Lord, I'll do this or that if you would simply speak to me, do something for me, make the sun come out so I can go play some golf or whatever. I mean, we're often looking for signs, right? We barter, uh, we barter with God. And here's the thing that I've noticed in my life, but just in the, the life of God and his people, instead of smoking us and rebuking us when we do these simple superstitious things, what does God do? He extends grace to us. He's kind to us. He blesses us despite us. Despite our superstitious, sinful selves, God chooses to bless us. Not because we deserve it, because he's 
he's just a gracious God. He blesses us despite the crazy things that we sometimes employ. He, just, he blesses us in spite of our superstition. And so here in the text, one of the sins that comes out really glaringly, the sin of superstition, there's one other, and it's the subtle way that God rebukes and mocks false gods and idols. And I think it begins in chapter, in, uh, chapter 30, verse 27, uh, where Laban says, I've learned by divination that God, that the true God blessed Jacob. These are crazy words that Laban is, is echoing here. And basically what he's saying is, all right, so my witchcraft is telling me that the God who hates witchcraft and controls everything to include me is going to bless you. I mean, that's, that, that really is a crazy line in, in our text. But here's the crazier thing. It means that Laban's witchcraft, but more importantly, these gods of which he's orienting his witchcraft aren't really gods at all. I mean, what are they? They're, they're stolen, they're hidden, they're sat on, they can be menstruated on. I mean, what kind of god is that? And so in the, in the ancient Near Eastern context of this passage, uh, the Israelites would have done two things. They'd be cracking up at some of the language used in the text. They'd be cracking up at the way that God is mocking false gods. But they'd also be cringing because they see Jacob participating in superstition, Jacob, uh, you know, patriarch in their lineage. How could he fall prey to that? But also they would be cringing at the, uh, the idea that the people of God, their ancestors, have given in to pagan superstition and asked God to bless that. But the overarching thing here is the way that God is mocking these make-believe gods of paganism. So all that to say, that's just my first point. The devil's in the details. Y'all see why I broke this up in two weeks? The devil's in the details. In other words, we, we can see very clearly the work of Satan to destroy these families and ruin the souls of people. It's, it's like out in the open. It's very evident here. But here's the good news. Satan and his schemes are not all-powerful, and he can't nullify the grace of God. And that's what we're going to see as the rest of this package unfolds. And here's my second point. Christ and the contrast. Christ and the contrast. So there's not an obvious picture of Jesus that makes this passage particularly challenging. It's what makes this passage particularly challenging. In fact, the, the whole episode can, be seen, can, can seem kind of dark and depressing, but there are glimmers of hope and grace in our text. But it comes mostly not from the people that are in the, in the story, not, definitely not Jacob and Laban or their wives or any of them attached, anything attached to them. It comes from the grace of God and his salvation to those who are undeserving. And so as we look at this passage, yeah, I mean, think about the behaviors of, of Laban and Jacob of their families. Who would you say the good guy is? I mean, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? It's, it's kind of hard to discern. In fact, I would beg to say at this point in the story of Jacob's life, there is no good person here. Lying Laban, deceiving Jacob, cross over to chapter 31, you got stealing Rachel. Who, who's in the right? I think there's only one key to, to this Bible passage. I mean, I, I, the reason why this is a hard passage to get to Jesus is because um, you got to look really hard to, to, to find it. But I, I think once you find it, you really see it. And we got to turn to the New Testament to really get it. Um, I actually used this passage in the, the very first 
um, sermon of this series, and it comes from chapter 9. There's, there's three beautiful words in the middle of verse 13 of Romans chapter 9. And the Bible says here, as Paul is, is, is writing, he says, Jacob I loved. Jacob I loved. Now, let me back up, and I'm going to give you a few verses right before that so you get the gist of, of what Paul is writing about, because he's writing about these patriarchs of Israel and the dysfunction in their families, but the providence and the sovereignty of God. Verse 6, But it's not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that the, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And so here it is. I mean, this is it's right here in the text. Jacob I loved. And so the point of this, this biography is it's not that Jacob was better than Laban, because obviously both of them have some character flaws. It's not that Rachel... Uh, had a better attitude than the other women in our text, and she's going to go to heaven when she dies. The point here in our text, in this biography of Jacob, is that, really, as Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, according to Paul, is gracious. He's looking through the, the, the chronicle of history and seeing all the sin and all the mess from people like you and me, and he's coming to the conclusion that God is gracious. And this is a picture, I think, of divine, gracious, sovereign, saving election. God chooses you despite you. Jacob, I've loved. I think that's the difference. And we'll see this again. We'll see this on and on in Scripture, particularly after this incident. Uh, Israel is going to uh, go into uh, slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God's going to send a deliverer named Moses. He's going to perform several different miracles to convince Pharaoh to let them go. And one of the uh, most important events in all of the Bible, the, the Passover happens. And the Passover is God telling Israel to slaughter uh, an innocent lamb, to take its blood, smear it over their doorposts, because he's going to kill the firstborn of, of everyone in the land that doesn't have that blood over them. And so we have to ask the question, why did God have Israel as well? Why did he tell them to put that blood over their doorposts? Because they weren't special because they were as wrathful and sinful as those Egyptians. And he was, by his grace, giving them a way to be recipients of his grace through that blood so that they would escape not only the wrath, but the destruction that was coming to the Egyptians. And I think it's not different with you and me. It's no different with you and me. Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? To what can I attribute my salvation why is it that I have the privilege to worship? Why is it that I have the privilege to walk 
with Jesus. And I would tell you it's not because you're better. You're not better than the Israelites. You're not better than anybody that lives in the land, in the, the whole world today. It's because Jacob I loved. God loved you. He loved you through his son to his death on the cross, dying in your place for your sin. And the Bible would convey to us there's no other basis on why you're saved and others aren't. It's divine, gracious, saving, sovereign election. God loved you. He loves me and gave himself for us, Paul would, Paul would tell us. And so Christ and the contrast. The contrast is how Jacob is blessed and Laban is not. And what it's showing us is the gracious salvation and the mercy of God for, for sinners. And that brings us finally to, uh, to consider the sacrament. So press past all the commotion of chapter 30 and 31. At the very end of our text, there actually is good news, really good news. There's a reconciliation of everything that happens. Jacob and Laban are, are still together, and they decide to reconcile. Actually, we'll talk more about this next week. It's like, a, all right, you don't come my way, I won't come your way. All right, and so to commemorate that, they have a covenant meal. They have a binding agreement between each other with some rules attached to it, and they confess um, allegiance to their gods, the God of, of, of Israel, uh, to ratify this covenant between themselves. They lay out some food and have a sacrificial meal associated with that, and they have words that accompany it, and uh, it's an appropriate resolution uh, to, to what's going on between them. But it's also a mirror of the covenant that we have with God. But guess what? That's the second part of the sermon, and that's next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can look 4,000 years ago, and although we, some of the culture there doesn't comply with the culture that we live in today, God, we see ourselves through these um, dysfunctional people. Lord, sin has run rampant in our world from Adam and Eve until today, and we are no different. But God, thank you that you've given us hope. You've given us hope through the gracious um, grace of Jesus. And so even in a text like this where there's superstition and um, the worship of, of gods and you're, you're seemingly blessing through those kinds of things, God, help us to see through the smoke. Help us to see you seated on your throne, reigning over, superintending over your people, but reigning over the kingdoms of the earth, ultimately until your kingdom is not just uh, under the, under, in the background, but it's on full display for all to see. And do that through the people of God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.